So, Jason, welcome. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I am awesome. I'm in Istanbul right now. I think you are in Los Angeles. I am Los Angeles, yes. It is evening in Istanbul. And could you tell me the artist who created the oil paintings behind you? Yeah, this is an artist from uh, Madrid, Spain, uh, named Santiago Giralda. And uh, he's wonderful. We, we ran into him... I feel, feel like it was like over 10 years ago now, close to 10 years, eh, not quite 10, maybe about, about 10. We were at an art show in Chicago, and my wife and I were there, and we went through this huge art show and didn't like anything, except we loved his stuff. And so we, we, bought, we bought one there, and we've since purchased a few more, and he's, he's wonderful. He's a very interesting artist, and I recommend everyone check him out. It's great to know. Yeah. And do you have watch collection and why do you have the watch collection i do although i've been thinning it out recently i i ended up buying too many watches um i've i've always liked watches my dad was into watches maybe still is i don't know i haven't looked at his collection in many years but he he uh he kind of got me into it mechanical watches specifically and one of the reasons i like them is because they're a really interesting combination of art and science and engineering in one little small package. And literally, it's one of the few things that you could buy today that'll last 100 years or five years. Very few things are built to last. And mechanical watches are, as long as you maybe service them once every 10 years, they'll last forever. Your kids will get them, their kids would get them. It's just a neat thing. And uh, they kind of captured me. So so I, I, I again, I purchased too many and I'm selling many of them right now, but I'm going to end up with at least a dozen. I'll keep a dozen or so. What influence and perspective, I mean, outside of your work, shape your world view? I love nature. So uh, nature has a lot to do with, uh, I think, the way I see a lot of things. Um, and uh, if I'm ever wondering how to do something, I, I look to nature. If I'm ever wondering what colors go well together, I look to nature. If I ever wonder what shapes go well together, I look to nature. I mean, it's you never look at nature and go ugly. You always go incredible, you know? So it's just a, it's just a catalog of, of wonderful solutions. And I'd say it influences me quite a bit. I'd say the other thing is, is that architecture is something I really, really have fallen in love with over the past 10, 15, 20 years. Um, it influences me in a variety of different ways, specifically textures and materials and colors and spaces and how it feels to enter a space and how it feels to enter a room and then enter another room. And go between rooms. I love great architecture and I really despise poor architecture. So uh, those two things really, I'd say nature and architecture really influence me quite a bit. I mean, as far as I understand you, I mean, you have a simplistic and lean approach to the product and company management. Are you also minimalist in your regular life? Not really. <laughs> I, I, I maybe more so than some, but certainly not anywhere near as, 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 as far as many. Um, Although lately I've been trying to become a bit more in certain things, although I've, I've collected other things that are, would say that I'm not minimalist, but um, I don't know. I, I kind of appreciate clutter to some degree more so than I would in my products. There's something interesting about going into someone else's space that's kind of a mess and all over the place. I find that to be interesting in a way that going into a spare, empty room is not. Now, there's something beautiful about a spare, empty space. But it's kind of cold and sterile. And I think that it's nice to have sort of things out of place and things sort of kind of that don't really match. It's kind of more interesting. And so I, I feel like minimalism, I don't really know how you define it, but wouldn't really support that kind of point of view. So I'd say I'm a little bit more on the slightly cluttered side. I kind of like that. And I know that uh, you have a different approach uh, producing new services and products. And what are your thoughts on the 
lean startup methodology and the concept of minimum viable product. There's some things I like about it spiritually, like the idea of building something that's tight and small and all you need. I, I like that part of it. I don't like the idea of a minimum viable product. I don't like the conceptually. I don't like it so much. Um, I, I think. I think it, you should build the best version one of something that you can, but that also means cutting out a bunch of stuff that you don't need. So to me, it's not about minimally viable; it's about best you can um, within constraints. Like that's just—it's a similar thing, but a different way to think about it. Um, I just don't like the idea of viable. The word minimally viable just doesn't really ring for me. Um, but, but as far as keeping teams small, building things relatively quickly, prototyping, that sort of thing, that does make sense to me. So I like some of the principles, but I'd say we have a different point of view in general along similar lines as some of those two movements. In ShapeUp, do you have the similar methodologies or strategies, by the way? Similar, but written differently and, and executed and practiced differently. But for example, uh, with ShapeUp, um, no one feature that we build in any one of our products can take more than six weeks. That's maximum. Um, so you got to figure out what's the best you can do with that limited amount of time. And not everything gets six weeks. Some things get three weeks. Some things get two weeks. But the idea is not letting things just balloon and expand and go on forever, which is a similar idea to the other other things, but but not necessarily. I mean, the idea of building a minimum viable product product could take three years. I don't think that's a good approach. So like to me, things should take a much less time. You should shorten your time frame, shorten your scope, cut your scope, have smaller teams, and try to get something out the door within six weeks in terms of specific feature. Building a brand new product takes longer, but you're going six weeks back to back to back to back versus working on any individual feature for months or months or months or months. I know that 37 Signals and then Basecamp has started more than 20 years ago, uh, yeah. 20 years ago. 25 now. Tw yeah. 25 years so when you go back to this time if there were accelerators like y combinator tech stars mm -hmm. and uh, i mean should you apply for them and in your opinion what core value do structured accelerated programs provide especially startup founders and young ventures today yeah so i've been around a few there's one called tech stars which is uh i used to mentor tech star chicago when i lived in chicago and the primary benefit I saw was just a bit of camaraderie. Uh, and, you know, it's nice to go through an experience with other people who are in a similar stage as you. That, that's true in school. It's true in life, you know, and, and it's probably true in business as well. As far as like, I don't think the money is that useful early on. I think it's actually kind of harmful unless you absolutely positively need it. But I think the less you have, the better off you are initially. Um my general feeling, though, is that is that independence is often an overlooked value, and I think it's it's particularly important to us, and I think should be more considered for others. I think a lot of folks these days just want to get in bed with someone who has a lot of money to build their business, and they don't think about what are they giving up when they take something in. And you do give up something. You give up autonomy. You give up a time frame. For example, when when someone gives you money, you're kind of on their time frame now. Um, the, the aim is to, is to return on that money, understandably so. And there's usually a time frame in which that return is expected um, versus like just going out and building the best thing you can and saying, I want to be in business for 20 years, 30 years. It doesn't, it's not always consistent with raising money, understandably so again. So just understanding what you're giving up when you take something in, I think is a very good thing. And 
I don't think accelerators really imbue people with that uh, with that question. They, they they don't encourage people to ask that question. Uh, they just encourage people to go fast. And when you're going fast, you tend to hire a bunch of people and spend a bunch of money. And I think that the term accelerator in itself is a bit of a problem. But I do think there's some wonderful things that come out of it. I know a lot of people who've gone through them who've really enjoyed it. So do you angel invest in startups? Not really. I put a few bucks few bucks into a few companies, primarily run by people that I know. So it's usually to help a friend or a founder that I'm really familiar with. But in general, I don't. I have enough risk in my own business. Uh, and then I invest in public markets, but in a very conservative way. Um, so like all the risk in my life is tied up to my own business. I don't really like to give money out to other risky businesses, unless again, it's someone I know and I want to support. So what makes you crazy at a, a typical day? in work life what makes me crazy yes um also personal life maybe yeah well per i've got two young kids and and they make me crazy <laughs> um it's a lot of work uh it's a lot of work i don't have a lot of free time i i i've always savored my free time and my independence and i don't have a lot of that right now so it's hard for me to adapt to that frankly that's one of the biggest challenges in my life is to like realize that I'm out of my own schedule anymore when it comes to, to, to life. Um, at work, things don't really drive me crazy other than like inefficiency and, and um, having to repeat myself. I, I don't like having to say the same thing two or three times to a team that I'm working with. Of course, like out loud, I will say things many times because not everybody hears you. You know, I might do this podcast and you have your audience, someone else has their audience and they're different audiences. So I'll say the same thing in a sense but I don't like saying the same thing to my team over and over. So that's one of the things that frustrates me. And when I see things becoming more complicated than they need to be, or more convoluted, or or in my mind, thicker than they need to be, I don't like that. So that's the kind of thing that really doesn't really drive me crazy so much, but it's the things I don't like about work. Um, and yeah, I would say those are, the, those are the things. I mean, when you are stressful like these times, what do you do to overcome these hurdles? Well, it's it's different, I think. You got to figure out where it's coming from. So sometimes is it my problem? Like, am I am I driving people in the wrong direction? Am I creating the complexity? If so, like, there's one solution for that. If another someone else is doing it, there's another solution for that. Um, in, in my life, like at home, I, I don't have a lot of control over how my kids are going to be and the things that are going to drive my, me and my wife crazy over this or over that. So part of this is recognizing what you don't have control of. I think that's the number one thing, because if you try to control something you don't have control over, it'll drive you more crazy. So it's more at the fundamental level. That's where I have to really spend my time. Otherwise, I can I can get myself wound up in loops that I don't have any control over, but I think I do. And then you just keep going in circles. So, hey, look, if it's if it's something I can't handle or I don't have control over, The best thing for me is to step back and let it happen, actually, and let it pass. But if there is something I can have influence over or I'm involved with specifically, I think about what can I do to change the situation? And 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 is it within my grasp? Is it within my reach? Is it within my my power to do so? If so, like, how can I do this productively and constructively? Um, so like yelling, for example, is not a particularly good, <laughs> good approach. Um, sometimes perhaps you may have to be firmer with something, but that's not always the go-to. So it really is contextual. I'm not a big fan of consistency. I'm more a fan of context. And so I think context, control, those kinds of things are really good things to think about if you really want to make change. How do you protect your focus, attention, and time against these interruptions, by the way? Um, well, 
I'll say like technically, I don't have notifications on for pretty much anything. Um, I don't have, I turn whenever I can, I turn like the badges off on my dock, on my, on my phone, I turn notifications off. So I don't like to be pulled into things. Um, and even though these things are called push notifications, they're not, they're pull. They pull you into a device or they pull you into a situation. I prefer to keep them all off and I'll check things when I have time. If someone needs to really get a hold of me, if there's an emergency, they can call me. That's a different kind of thing. So I, I tend to use voice and audio as like the emergency channel. Otherwise, I'll just get back to people when I have a chance. So that's, that's number one. Um, number two is not expecting that of other people, not expecting immediate responses from others, um, not jumping in and causing chaos and havoc, um, you know, respecting other people's boundaries like I want them to respect mine. And if you do those, those things, like you keep notifications to, to a minimum and you don't bug other people that much and so they won't bug you, those two things can go a long way towards, towards maintaining a, uh, an environment where you can focus just on the things you need to and not get carried away and getting pulled into to, you know, the maelstrom of, of work. Um, so that, that's, those are the two things I do. Um, the other thing I would say is not having that much to do is very important. People like to make, them, make long lists for themselves and have all these expectations and goals and rituals. I'm not that person. I don't really have a lot of goals. Um, I don't have a lot of expectations as well. I, I, I tend to focus on the now, focus on what we're doing, try to do the best job I can. And that's, that's you know, let the chips fall where they may versus like setting up these goals and these numbers and these things we're all trying to attain and strive towards. I think that causes a lot of stress and unnecessary chaos. So um, dialing things back, just saying, let's do the best work we can today. Let's give it our best today. And that's all we have. So sticking close to that, I think is very helpful. So do you consider yourself more as an introvert or an extrovert? I'm very introverted for sure. But yeah. I mean, it seems to be vice, I mean, uh, reverse uh, as we listen <laughs> and uh, probably read your books and you are very confident and also outward. Well, I mean, books are very introverted things. I get to write them in quiet, peace and quiet, and I get to put them out there and people can read them and they're not, I'm not with them, you know? So uh, I like conversation. I like one-on-one -on -one conversations, small group conversations quite a bit. And to me, the internet's interesting because it's, it's, even though you might be broadcasting to many, many people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, a million, whatever it might be, it doesn't feel that way to me. It feels like I'm having a conversation with one person and I'm very comfortable in those situations. And I'm also comfortable on stage. I've spoken to big audiences, but that also feels in, in a way um, fine. What I don't like is after my talk, there being a line of 30 people to have to talk to or have to do like the after talk dinner, like that kind of stuff I, I'm not comfortable with. Um, so it's really like the, the big groups where it's one to many or me broadcasting one to many this way that I'm comfortable or one-on-one, -on -one. but I don't like the middle ground. So I would definitely mm -hmm. call myself an introvert and I prefer to stay home versus go out to a party or whatever. That's just not kind of my thing. Yeah. So when do you find yourself in the state of flow? Um, flow, right when I write, uh, I, I find myself in flow when I'm thinking about new product ideas. Uh, so big picture thinking, I've, I find very relaxing and very comfortable, comforting and, and intellectually stimulating and interesting. Um, I don't find myself in the flow when I'm in the minutia, when I'm dealing with a bunch of stuff I don't want to deal with. I, I definitely feel 
clunky and not flowing. So for me, like, for example, we're about to work, start working on a new product uh, this week. I like this. This is kind of my zone. Um, the big picture thinking about what this thing should do, what it's all about, uh, the big idea behind it, coming coming up with a clear idea that I can uh, explain to others, um, finding an idea that in my mind rhymes, like it all just sort of rhymes. It goes well together, like a good poem is where I'm in my flow state. Yeah. I mean, also, I would say the other thing is whenever I'm going for a walk, I'm in a flow state. So I, I actually don't like sitting still and talking. I, I much prefer to walk and talk. It's just hard to do that on Zoom <laughs> or, or, or whatever, right? So I find myself sitting more than I like when I'm talking to people. I'd much rather be on the phone taking a walk. And when I talk to my, my coworkers, um, I'm almost always walking. So I, I tend not to do video calls. I much prefer to do audio. So that way I can you know put my headphones in and take a walk and talk. I think it will be a great name for your podcast, walking and podcasting. <laughs> I've wanted to do a walk and talk podcast for a long time, actually. Uh, I think it'd be way more interesting, frankly. So I, I don't know, maybe one day. You mentioned, I mean, you have uh, several products now. And the, from your perspective, you were going to Basecamp, one product. And are you looking for expand and growth now? Why now? Yeah, it's a great question. We we were we used, used to have many products, and then we went back down just to one. And then over the past few years, uh, we, we launched Hay, and now we've launched Campfire under the Once umbrella, which is a new brand of ours. Why are we doing this? Well, we had an itch. We realized that we we're makers, and we were like holding ourselves back. and Once, like you can hold yourself back for a little bit and be comfortable with that. But there's a point where you go, why are we, why, why are we limiting ourselves? Let's, let's see if we can do more again. Um, it's not really to grow the business as much as it is to grow our, um, it's not even growing as much as it's exercising our, our, our interests. You know, we have new ideas. Hey, was a brand new idea for us. We wanted to really rethink email. We just launched a Hey Calendar. We wanted to really rethink calendaring. Why? Because we use these things all the time and we're tool makers. We want to make the tools. We want to make the things that we use and we have better ideas. And we are frustrated by the state of the art. And when we get frustrated, we end up making stuff. That's what we do. Um, so we've been frustrated a lot lately. And so for us, the answer is to make things, not to complain, but to make stuff. And so um, The next thing we're going to build is another is based on another frustration that we have. Like, why is it so hard to do, or why can't I do X, or why does it take three or four or five different products to do X? Like, I don't mean X Twitter. I mean like X as an example. Yeah. <laughs> like, why? Why? Like, this should be simpler. And if we're struggling with this, others are too. Let's make something for them and for us at the same time. Um, so I think we just have that. We're in that state right now. And I think when you've been in business for 25 years, you're going to go through some cycle. And, you know, once we had a cycle of plenty, and then we had a cycle of sort of one, and now we're going back towards plenty. And um, we built up the business or the company a bit more to be able to do more than one thing at a time. Um, so we, we hired a bunch more people over the past couple of years so we could do that. And now we can do two or three or four things at once. And so we're, we're executing on that and exercising that and seeing what happens. So how do you define winning in the business? Yes, winning in the business. I don't think I'm winning. I don't think of winning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think you need to win. I think you just need to, to make sure you cover your costs and, and make mm -hmm. a profit. Uh, so are we winning in any industry that we're in? No, we're, we're like, if you look at email, like Gmail is crushing us. They have a billion customers. Good for them. Great. 
We don't need a billion. We've got tens of thousands of paying customers. We're quite happy with that. Basecamp, uh, there are lots and lots of, of products like Basecamp or compete in the same space like Basecamp. Good for them. We've got our huge customer base of Basecamp customers, which is basically drives our entire business. Wonderful. We're happy with that. Are we winning? No. Are we losing? No. We're, we're doing neither. We're just existing uh, in a place that's sustainable for us and thriving in that space. That's how I look at it. So it's not about beating anyone or destroying anyone or taking a market or anything. It's about <clears throat> thriving. And you can thrive um, as long as your costs are in check and you have a nice customer base, you can thrive. And that's all we're trying to do here. It's very much like nature, going back to the nature thing. You know, uh, in any ecosystem, there are, you know, well, can be tens of thousands of species coexisting. You know, they're battling for resources, but they're not battling to take all the resources. They're battling to find their share of the resources that support them and their species. And it turns out that a lot can coexist in the same square mile. That to me is is a great model for business actually. And that's what we try to do. Recently, you have a blog post and also you mentioned about the intuition and mm. gut feeling and yes. the importance of making decisions uh, on the intuition base and gut decision. What do you, and you are asking not about what do you know, what do you think uh, in the company as far as I uh, have yeah. uh, listened. And that is an interesting approach. Do you ever feel there are limitations for this approach? Because you are also doing A-B tests. It's not intuition. It is purely maths. Is there a limitations about intuition and database decisions? Yes, everything's a trade-off. Um, but to your point about A-B tests, we don't do them that much. But when we do them, this is the interesting thing about A-B tests. So you, get, you, get, you test two things and you get data. And everyone looks at the data. But I look at the two things. Where those come from? Why those two things? So why not test two other things or two other things or pick any combination of things? Where'd those ideas come from that you're testing in the first place? Did they come from other tests? Where'd those tests come from? So if you keep going down at some point, it's like someone made a decision to try something. Someone had a hunch. Someone had an intuition. That this design might be better than this design. And maybe you find out that it is, but where'd the designs come from? That to me, I like to go backwards there and keep going backwards. And you realize at some point, someone just made a call. Where'd that call come from? It came from their gut at some point, some level, somewhere. Some designer decided to put the line here and not there. It wasn't scientific. It was intuition-based. It was based on experience and judgment and years and, and art and all the things that we don't know and the millions of inputs that we don't understand that are influencing us every single day. I just find that mystery to be very interesting. Um, and I find it to be more honest, frankly, just to say that it is kind of a mystery. And yeah, you can measure some things at the end of the chain or at the end of the line. But what about the rest of the line? That to me is, is where it's exciting. So we're, we, we were primarily a gut-driven, intuition-driven company. Um, we make decisions on the fly. We, we come up with things. We try things. And we don't feel like we need to justify the things that we try or the things that we do. In the end, the market will tell us whether or not this is a viable idea or not. It doesn't mean it's a good or bad idea. Is it a viable idea in the market, in that environment? That's what the market can tell you. Um, it's a good idea if you like the idea. If, if that satisfies you, it's a good idea. But whether or not it's viable is up to the market. So we leave the market 
uh, we, we leave it up to the market to determine whether or not we can stay in business. And um, so far, we found that this is a pretty effective way of running a business for us. Other people are going to be different. But I would still challenge people to say, who, who are very data-driven, to say, well, where'd the things that you're testing come from? It's a great question just to ask, even if you want to argue it. It's still a good question to ask. And I would ask, where are the, where, okay, what are the things that you think of? Where did those things come from? Where did those things come from? If you go back a few layers, you don't really know where things came from. Now, I think that's interesting. When you become indecision pros, I mean, not making a decision, especially intuition, do you sleep on it? Sometimes, yeah. I mean, oftentimes, actually. I, I would say, if it's a really small decision, you just kind of make it. But if it's sort of like uh, an interesting, bigger decision, perhaps, uh, we'll often, a couple of us will be debating something, and then we'll say, you know what? Here's the decision we think we're going to make. But let's sleep on it. So we tend to make a decision and then sleep on this on the decision versus not making one, sleeping on it, and then seeing what comes up the next day. So we do like to tend to get to something by the end of conversation, and then we'll sleep on it. And um, the next morning has a way of telling you something different um, or, or reinforcing what you picked. But it, it, it's, it, there's a clarity that comes from tomorrow morning that doesn't come from right now. Right now, you're in the thick of it. You're bubbling with thoughts. Uh, you're arguing for something, your ego is more involved, but you sleep on it and you wake up and all that stuff is not true anymore. Like the ego is not really there. And you're like, well, how do I feel about it today? Um, and uh, I, I like the clarity that tomorrow brings. So, but tomorrow is tomorrow. It's not every tomorrow forever. You keep thinking and pondering and thinking like you got to make a call. So we, we tend to give it a day. So can you give an example of a hard decision, recent decision? So, uh, particularly challenging. How do you navigate the complexities and to reach a conclusion? Well, so a good recent example is we're, so we, as I mentioned, we're starting a new product this week mm -hmm. and we had three ideas that we could pursue that we, we felt pretty good about. So which one are we going to pursue? Now that sounds like a big challenging question and, and it, it sort of is, but it also isn't that big of a deal because we move quickly. So we're going to take about three months, which is about two cycles worth of work. Two cycles are six weeks at a time. So we're going to take about three months to build this next product. Now, um, that's not that long. It's pretty short. And the good news is we can do the next one in about three months. So decisions become hard and challenging and complicated and complex when you only get to make one of them over a long period of time. So if we we're going to spend three years on our next product and then three years on the next one after that and through nine years to make three things, then the next decision you make is a huge consequential decision. But if you're going to make something that's only going to take a few months and you get to make the next thing after that, it's not as big of a decision. So on paper, it's a big decision. What's the next product you're going to make? But if you get to make another one, another decision not too long from now, it minimizes the, the severity of the decision, which makes it more free-flowing and makes it easier to make ultimately versus like really feeling like you got to make the right one. I'm not that interested in making the right one. I'm interested in making one that we are comfortable with and that we know that if it doesn't work, we can make a different one not too far from now. So that's how I tend to think about these things. Uh, so to your, to your question, like, It is a big decision. It's an important one. But also in my point of view, or from my point of view, there are very few super, super important key decisions like that that you have to make that you can't just revisit in a few months. 
I think Jeff Bezos talks a lot about this one-way, two-way decisions. I don't know. Have you heard this? Mm-hmm. You heard yes, about true. This? Yeah, Open I really door, like it. Like, closed door. Closed door. Yeah. So, so yeah. there are very few closed-door decisions. There are very few one-way decisions where you basically you're a pouring concrete and you can't change your mind. Hardly any. But I think people treat so many as if they are. And that's why they get all bound up and they're afraid and they double and triple and quadruple check everything. And they have more people involved and they get more opinions and things get drawn out. They're putting too much on something that doesn't deserve it. And so we're very careful about that. So in these tough decisions, do you have mentors or friends whose opinions you seek out for certain decisions? Do you have mentors, by the way? Do you ask and get an advice from them? They don't ask, typically don't ask people directly. But I think I'm influenced by all sorts of people all the time, by their decision-making process and things I've seen out there in the world. And I don't, the, the truth is like, I don't think many of us really understand what really influenced us. So we, we, you know, you might go to a mentor and ask them a question, uh, let's say, and you, maybe you go with what they say or you don't. But that's actually only one of many, many, many inputs that are pushing on you. And you just don't realize that you're conscious of that one. So you put a lot of, you think you put a lot of weight into it, but maybe you really Don't. Maybe it's the other things that have already made up your mind, and that person is simply confirming what you were going to do anyway. Or maybe they do change your mind, but you know, I don't know. I, I'm I'm skeptical of like asking that one person, then doing that thing and putting all the weight into their point of view. So I would say that I'm influenced by by years and years and years of of witnessing other decisions and and paying attention to how other people have run their businesses and things that I've seen that I think are are good decisions or bad decisions, and all those come to bear. In an invisible way, I think ultimately when I when I make decisions. Um, so yeah, I, I think I mean there's a few people over the years that I've I talk to more frequently about things, but I don't wait to make a call until I talk to one of them or something like that. I don't I don't say like I'm on the fence. What do I do? What do you think, Bob? That's not kind of how I do it. Do you make any exceptions in this decision making process? Give me an example of what you might think of. An I mean. Great uh, question, <laughs> by the way. Uh, for example, it is your friend, family, and then you have to, not the intuition-based, gut-based, but you have to do what they want. And your decision yeah. doesn't, uh, I mean, it's not that, but it is your friend or a close relative and you have to do it. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, that, I think life is a little bit different than business, especially when like in business, I, I own the company, I'm the CEO, ultimately it's my call. Like we will do what would I say? Like that is the truth. It's not how I play the game, but that is the tr- in life. No, I mean, I, I defer to many other people in life all the time because in, in certain cases, this thing is way more important to them than it is to me. And if, you know, I want to be in a family and I want to be in a society and, you know, you, you do things other people want to do, of course, like that's part of give and take in, in life. Um, and business is that way too. I mean, I'm not shoving ideas down people's throats all the time. I let a lot of things just go the way other people want them to go. Um, but yeah, there, 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 are, there are certainly times when I don't get my way and, you know, I've, I've come, I, I've learned to, to actually enjoy the outcome more than I think I used to. I think I used to definitely want things to happen my way, but getting married and having kids, you know, my wife and I just had our 10th wedding anniversary last year. And, and, you know, my kids are, thank you. My kids are, are nine <laughs> and five. So I've, I've, the last 10 years have been a, a, a life-changing event for me, let's say. A, a big, long change of, 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 of more. I'm practicing acceptance more, let's say, uh, than, than, I, than I had been previous to those last 10 years. I mean, how does your family 
played a role in your entrepreneurship life? Because I think this is your first startup. And yeah. uh, through all your life, this is the only company that you work. So yeah, how was your family's effect? I don't talk about work uh, very much with my family. Um, <laughs> my son, who's nine, is a little bit more curious about it to some degree. And we'll talk about it if he's curious. But I don't. Work is not something that comes up in many conversations around around family. I, I work from basically nine to five. And, you know, my kids are at school for most of the day. And at the end of the day, I, I don't talk much about work. I just leave work there. And we talk about other things uh, after that. So, I, I, I mean, I feel like they're quite separate. I think if I was if I was a late worker or working on the weekends or whatever, it would definitely impede my family life, and I think there'd be more conversations about it. But it, they kind of glide past each other because they don't really affect each other very much, and mm -hmm. I like keeping it that way. And your father, mother, when you start this business, for example, you if there was, I mean, you have a successful business now, but did you have a backup plan or an alternative <laughs> options in case of your contrarian path? didn't succeed quickly. Well, I've never gotten ahead of myself. So for example, when I started my business, it was just me working out of my, you know, one bedroom apartment until I can afford something else. I didn't, I didn't do it. Um, I didn't, I didn't put myself in a position where if it didn't work, I'd be in real trouble, let's say. Um, my parents have always been very supportive of me. Um, and they've never told me otherwise. So like, I never told them I was going to be an entrepreneur. Or I never, They never wanted me to be this or to be that. They sort of wanted me to be what I ended up being. Um, so they've been supportive. And I feel like, look, if I really needed help, if I really got myself in a bind, they would they would have been there and so would be there today if I needed that. Um, but I've, I don't know why. I've always been very careful about, like, it's funny. People would say, like, I make decisions recklessly and that I just make them. But I'm also very careful about the decisions I make. I, I, I will take risks, but I do not like to put myself at risk. And so that's always been the way I've played this, which is that I'm, I'm very rarely am I going to make a decision that could sink the whole ship. I, I just won't do that unless I like my back is against the wall and I must. Um, I'm not risky in that way. So when I first started my business, like I said, I was in a one bedroom apartment. I did not stretch to get anything. I did not hire someone. I did not spend a lot of money on anything. I did not get an office. I just stayed within my means until I could had enough cushion to take the next tiny step. It was never a big step. It was always a tiny, tiny step to the next level. And I feel like I've always done it that way, which kind of reduces your risk and, and helps you not fall backwards into a deep hole. So that's kind of the answer to that question. I think 25 years ago, you had a, another co-founder, Carlos. What yes. happened to Carlos? Doesn't he? <laughs> I had two. So I had Carlos and Ernest. So yes. Carlos Segura and Ernest Kim were my original two co-founders. Carlos and I talk uh, a couple times a week. We're like great friends. Um, he's a he's a des graphic designer and has always been is one of the great world world's great graphic designers and has done that business ever since. We talk about cars. We talk about all sorts of stuff. Tech. We we talk about a bunch of stuff all the time. And then Ernest is someone who I haven't really kept close in close touch with, but he's gone on to have a really wonderful career at Nike. So he is very high up. Research and development in the running shoe uh, category, I believe, still over at Nike. Um, and it's crafted quite a career um, over there. And it's had a lot of influence at Nike and uh, has always loved shoes. So it kind of was the right place for him. And he's a brilliant product thinker. And uh, we just kind of lost touch. But like, we'd be super friendly if we 
saw each other and are caught up. I think the last time I talked to him was a number of years ago, but I kind of pay attention to what he's doing here and there. So they've, they've, they've gone off to do their things. I've gone off to do my thing and everyone's, uh, it's, everyone's living happily ever. After. So it was a, a soft uh, kind of uh, separation uh, with the new I mean, company. Early. So, so the business we have today was not the business we had back then. When, mm -hmm. when Car Carlos left about a year later, we were just doing website design for, for clients. So we were not a software company yet. So we didn't have much business. Carlos left about a year later. Ernest left a few years after that. Ernest went down a few different paths before he landed at Nike. Carlos just went back to doing his own business. Um, but but the, the business we had was already barely off the ground. So jumping off of that was not that big of a deal. Um, <laughs> today is a different business than it was back then. What is your superpower? I don't, I don't think I have one. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, I would say that like what I'm good at, perhaps, is... Um, seeing the simplest version of something that that's necessary. Um, so uh, there are simpler versions of things, but I, I think I'm good at figuring out like just the right amount of something that it needs to be. Um, and then I think I've become good at communicating these things as well. I, I don't know if I was initially very good at that, but I think I've gotten, gotten better at that over the years. Um, so I think, I think I would just, I would leave it at that, which is like, I think I have a pretty good knack for figure. Actually, one more thing. I'll, I'll give myself credit for one more thing. But I think I have a pretty good knack for figuring out just the right size of something. And then I think I've proven to be quite good at finding other people who are quite good at what they do. So mm -hmm. uh, hiring good people is something that, that uh, I think we really excel at over the years. Um, so I'll, I'll give myself that credit and I will not give myself credit for much else. But that in business, I think that's, those are maybe let's say three things I'm good at. If you, if you want an additional superpower, let's say a superpower, what would it be? That's a really good question. Um, I would say in business, I'm pretty comfortable. I would say in life, um, being more tolerant and more accepting uh, of situations that I, I don't <laughs> control. I still am working through that. Uh, having, again, having kids and being married has been very humbling. And I, I have, I feel like it's a lifelong uh, journey for me to, to continue to become more accepting and be able to roll with it a bit more than I do. So I wish I was better at that uh, in life. In business, I'm quite content, actually. I mean, there's certainly things I'm not good at. There's certainly things we could be better at. There's opportunities we miss. There's all sorts of things, but I'm, I'm okay with all those things. In life, I do wish I was a little bit better at rolling with things. What is your process for learning new skills or topics? For example, if you wanted to learn a guitar or a Spanish, how would you approach it? What's your approach? <laughs> well, it's funny because I've, I've tried to get better at both of those things and I've been failing. Um, I, I realized that I need, there's two things. I need an appointment. So I need uh, someone, I, for example, I, I, I see a personal trainer three days a week. If I didn't, I wouldn't exercise enough. I love exercising. I take good care of myself and I love the exercise. I love the process. But if I didn't have to be there at 8 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I probably wouldn't go. And I found that's true for any skill for me, which is I need an appointment and I need a person to be obligated to. Um, so I need a teacher and I need lessons. <laughs> I need to be there. So I think those are the things. Otherwise, I'm not a great self-learner unless I need the thing. So if I need the thing, like I learned HTML and CSS because I needed to build a website. I don't need to learn guitar. I don't need to learn Spanish. So in those cases, so I think for me, it's important to identify 
necessity versus luxury. Learning Spanish, playing guitar, learning drums, these things are learning ceramics or something. Another thing I want to get into. These are, these are luxuries and luxuries for me require a person and an appointment. Necessities do not. Right now in business, I don't have a lot of necessities beyond what I already know, but in, in life, there's, there are things I want to learn that um, I need an appointment for. That's a long answer, I, but that's kind of how I've, I've seen it. Are there any company cultures that you inspire? For example, are there any products or um, ventures that create a service or a product that you like and use and wanted to meet with the founder, for example? Hmm. Yeah, I use a lot of things that I really uh, admire. Um, th there's two things like in the coffee world. Let me let me stick to the coffee world. I, I enjoy making espresso every morning. And um, the products I use, there's two products specifically. Uh, one is an espresso machine by a company called Decent, Decent Espresso. They're based out of Hong Kong. And their espresso machine, and I do happen to know the founder, but I so admire their approach to... Um, making this espresso machine, which is radically different than any other espresso machine on the market on a number of different variables in a number of different ways. I always admire and respect products that come out of the enthusiasts world. The guy who does this, his whole team, but they are just all in, they're just coffee drinkers. And because they're coffee drinkers, they approach it differently than let's say a big brand that also makes coffee machines. Like you look at this thing and you go, Only coffee nerds would have made this thing. And the same thing is true for this grinder I use. Uh, it's called the, gosh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it's called Kafka Tech. Uh, Mono, so, I can't remember it. Anyway, I'll send you a link if you want to put it. Yeah, sure. It's so ridiculously overbuilt and so unusual and like 25 pounds heavy and made out of, out of, out of machined aluminum and steel and brass and it's beautiful and interesting and totally overkill but only made by somebody who's a complete nerd about grinders i just like nerd products because they go the extra mile in a way that enthusiasts would really appreciate and that a mainstream maker would never do because it wouldn't be cost efficient or cost effective or the market's not big enough and so they don't pursue that but the the, the, the enthusiasts do so i love all things made by enthusiasts basically And I try to, I try as best I can to buy things from people who are just all in because they're, they, they live and breathe the thing versus just like a company that makes something. So I think Turtle Seven Signals is also uh, making products for yourself. So you yes. are a similar approach. And how do you hire and fire, I mean, team colleagues? And it is, mm -hmm. hiring is maybe more enjoyable, but. How is firing process? Well, I don't enjoy that at all. Firing is, is horrible. Um, but what I've come to realize is uh, that um, when it's necessary, it's a good thing. As much as it hurts, um, it's a good thing because when people are in bad situations, it doesn't benefit them or us to keep them in that bad situation. And there are many, many places people can work and go and thrive. And if someone's not thriving here and you know it, it doesn't help them to keep them around. And it's going to hurt in the short term. Obviously getting fired is not pleasant. I've been fired before. It's, everyone, it's horrible. Everyone knows it, but it's a release and it's an opportunity ultimately to find a better fit somewhere else. Um, I think that's the big insight ultimately that, that you have to come to. 
that your company is not the best place in the world for a lot of people. It's the best place in the world for some, but for many, it's not. And uh, it's, you know, you got, you got to step your ego back and go, you know what, this is better. This person might, they might find incredible success elsewhere. And I wish them well, and I want them to, even though this current moment sucks. Um, so, so there's that. Um, I tend to, I would say, fire people a little bit too late. Um, David, my business partner, is definitely uh, more aggressive when it comes to this. Um, and I, I've come to see that uh, his point of view is actually often correct, um, but I, I have a hard time with it still. So um, I, I'm, I would say, a little bit softer, perhaps. Um, but again, his point is, let him find a better fit somewhere else. Why, why hold him back? So, so it, it's tricky. It's very complicated. I would say hiring, though, is one of the, one of the most wonderful things to do. And it's one of the rare things you get to do as a business owner is that essentially you get to pick everybody. Ultimately, I mean, I don't hire, every team hires their own people, but, but ultimately like this is the company that you're crafting and it's made of people and setting the tone and setting the character and setting the skill levels uh, and setting, you know, setting the approach, it, it has such a huge influence on, on, on all the hiring practices that it's a really wonderful, fun thing to do. And I really do enjoy that process quite a bit. Don't you look to the, uh, their CVs and you only look to, for the cover letters? Yeah, I don't really look at CVs. Uh, I, I mean, I'll browse them, but I don't care. It doesn't really matter to me uh, where you've been and what you say you've done and maybe what school you... I just don't really care that much. Um, I, I'm curious about what can you do. Um, and when I mean you, I mean you. Not like what can you do as part of a team of 30, but like what can you do independently? And so that's why the cover letter is the start of that because the cover letter is a should be a letter that's written directly from them to us. So it's their first act of work. Uh, it's their first act of communication. It's their first act of expression. It's the first act of solo independent work. And so I look to that as a clue and a cue for what this person's capable of far more than a C. So that's kind of our approach. I think also you have um, in the company writing skills, you, you need writing skills because you don't have meetings. So what advice do you give for anyone who wants to write a sentence? Ah, there's a great book. I don't know where it is. I have it uh, somewhere. It's, it's, um, Uh, I think it's called uh, something about several short sentences or something. Oh, man, I can't remember the name of the book now. And I don't happen to have it handy in my office here. Um, I forget the author's name is Vern. I can't remember his whole name. But um, Vern Klingberg. That's it. Several short sentences about writing, I think, maybe is the name of the book. That's true. That's true. It's an extraordinary book uh, about writing sentences. It's, It's wonderful. But I think... The, the the beautiful thing about a sentence is that is that um, uh, it is the real sort of atomic unit of, of of writing. Of course, you can say the word is, but like eh, words on their own, a sentence is a, is a collection of words, and that's what paints the picture. And I think if you want to get good at writing, you should get good at writing sentences first. Versus like, let me get good at outlining, or let me get good at storytelling. It's like get good at writing sentences. So that's a wonderful book that I do recommend people check out. So the Do you plan to write the next book? What should it about, by the way? Uh, I think we're going to start to write another book this year, I think. Um, and I would like to write the book on intuition, on running a business by the gut. Uh, mm. on, you know, not, not, a, not data-driven organization, but, a, but a, a gut-driven organization. What does that look like? What does it mean? What are the trade-offs? 
how do you how do you do that um what do gut driven decisions look like how do you apply that to different types of decisions and as always it comes back to our own experience like what have we done how do we do it what's worked for us this is not a here's what you need to do but here's what we've done and maybe some of this applies to you i've always appreciated books that are written from the first person perspective in that way like here's what worked for us here's what worked for me I don't know if it's going to work for you or not, but here's another perspective that's worth considering. Maybe you weren't aware of it, or maybe you didn't think it was viable. Here it is. And, uh, you know, take it for what it's worth. So yeah. do you listen music while you are working? And do you recommend any type of music inspiring, motivating during your workday? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. I find that if I'm having, if I'm struggling writing, I will turn some music on without lyrics. Um, usually sometimes though with lyrics, sometimes I'll listen, like if If I'm trying to come up with something clever, sometimes I'll put Bob Dylan on because he's such a clever songwriter. It's just like the turn of phrases and the words. I it just sometimes gets me going. It's like a it sends me on on a spiral that that's good. But oftentimes I'll, I'll listen to things that are just more rhythmic because I I think of writing as a as a rhythm, and so um, I really like to listen to to um, uh, like tribal drumming sometimes. You know, like just to kind of get into this rhythm. Uh, 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 and then, then the words tend to, tend to find their way for me. Um, or, or classical piano is actually a wonderful thing to listen to sometimes. Um, it just all depends. Music is a, is a flavor. It's like food. It's like, what are you in the mood for? It's not like I always eat the same food and I don't always listen to the same music. I also tend not to play something I'm familiar with. So I, maybe I'll go to Spotify and find a playlist of something like that because I think the novelty helps me, um, listen, uh, versus like knowing what's coming, which is what happens when you listen to something you already know. And I don't find it really sparks the same creativity. So, yeah. Last question. Great. If you go back to the starting point, when you set up your company, give yourself an advice. What would the top three pieces of advice be? <laughs> First of all, like just do it. So like, this is the Nike slogan, but like, um, and these are not things I struggled with, by the way. I, I was pretty good at these, but I think these are important things, which is just, just go make something. Just go. Stop thinking about it. Stop overthinking about it. Stop asking for a second opinion or a third opinion or a fourth opinion. Just go make something. So that that's number one. Number two would be keep it as small as you possibly can. Live within your means and see that as an advantage, not a disadvantage. Even when it's painful and you wish you had more, live within your means. And the third thing I think would be um, write. Practice writing. Write as much as you can. Um, I know in this day and age, video is very important, obviously. And so, you know, getting comfortable being in front of a camera is something that's more important today than it was 20 years ago. But I still think that writing is the sort of universal medium here that's that's wonderful to get to get good at. It'll give you a lot of leverage in a lot of ways over the next 10-20 years. So I'd say start practicing that early. Jason, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to have a conversation with you, and thank you. Uh, appreciate your time and also lots of insights. Thank you very much. Likewise, Brock. It was wonderful to talk with you. Thanks. Great questions. I loved them. Thank you very much. All right.